0: Clitorati, we've got another doctor in the house, and this man is a powerhouse, releasing hilarious and often scathing remarks on the state of sex education in our current culture. He received his doctorate in clinical psychology, completed a postdoctoral fellowship in sexual health, And was awarded tenor in the Department of Psychology at Minnesota State University, where he is currently an associate professor, co-director of the Sexuality Studies program, and leads the sexual health and research team examining the intersections of sexuality, Stigma and Satanism. He has published articles on the effects of sexually explicit material, older adult sexuality, sex worker affirmative therapy, and satanic sexuality. So we want to dive deep with this man today because I'm not sure if we've ever had anyone quite like him over the 250 episodes of Clit Talk. So please welcome the infamous Dr. Eric Frankel.
1: Woo! Yeah,
2: (laughs) so much to unpack, Katie. This is the most
0: turned on
1: I've ever
2: seen Katie for a guest. By the way, (laughs) I'm so excited. Well, everyone in I'm getting my sex educator certification right now, which we talked about, and everyone in my. Sar, my sexual attitude reassessment was raving about you. So I was like, let's get him on the show. So I'm (laughs) so excited. (laughs) Katie was like, dream (laughs) guest, see if he'll come on. And he did. Yeah. So I want to dive right in because much of your messaging on social media revolves around your research and satirical commentary, which is hilarious, by the way on the relationship between Satanism, stigma, mental health, and sexuality. So can you kind of like unpack that, like introduce that message to our listeners and unpack it for us a little bit?
3: Sure. I mean, I think the overall mission of anything that I put out there on, on social media or in my writings right now, or even my my academic work with my, my research or my classes, kind of like the, the theme that connects all of it, is essentially just unapologetically challenging the status quo as it relates to sexuality and our sexually repressive uh, culture. So that comes at a lot of different angles, a lot of different topics. Um, I have a lot of different targets, uh, sometimes on the individual level, more so on the systemic level. Of just individuals or systems that try to police or control our sexuality in very archaic or pseudoscientific ways. And that's essentially just my mission statement is to slowly chisel away at some of those systems and individuals.
2: I love that. And um, so you don't practice one on one anymore, right? You just.
3: Correct, you know. yeah.
2: So when you're talking about purity culture, like. What would your advice be to people or findings from your research, who, people who are struggling to overcome religious trauma and shame, mm-hmm. sexual shame, who are really impacted by this universal purity culture that um, that you're so passionate about? i demystifying <laughs> for
3: everyone. <laughs> yeah, I would say like two things are important to kind of start that process. <laughs> And this is me just giving advice. This is like therapeutic advice um, (laughs) because that will look differently on an individual level and processing. You know, if there was actual you know trauma, traumatic experiences, that would take a different um, that would require a different approach on the therapeutic level. So this is just kind of some some broad guidance. So Mm -hmm. two things to keep in mind: one is that just understand and acknowledge that you've been lied to essentially your whole life about sexuality. (laughs) especially about <laughs> yeah. from people that you've respected and trusted and people in authority positions so yeah. everything that your youth pastor has said about sex is likely a lie And you can speculate whether or not that was malicious line, manipulative line, or it's just based in their own ignorance. But nonetheless, what they were saying about sexuality is just not true, or it's a partial truth that's wrapped up into misinformation or something like that. So anytime you hear sexuality messages, it should come with a certain degree of skepticism, especially reflecting back on the messages that you received growing up. We have to be skeptical about everything that we've heard, because more than likely, The accuracy is not the greatest in that message, and it's just kind of wrapped up in more of a a moral, value-based kind of message than anything factual or or scientifically or medically grounded.
0: I love this so much because I'm (laughs) in the process of reading the Fifth Agreement right now. My dad like sent me a copy. He's like, I wanted to get you this book, and the Fifth Agreement is be skeptical. Yeah, and listen. Mm -hmm. Because words right. are lies. Because basically, consider everything you've been told, and this mm-hmm. is so true and reflected in in what you're sharing. Is you know, it is not the truth, and we need to come at that and question it. Question what this knowledge that has been sort of programmed into us mm-hmm. since we're little yeah. beings.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And the second part about that would be, and this doesn't happen overnight, but ultimately a goal would be to surround yourself more with individuals, the support system, friends, family members that share common sex positive values as Mm. as you are developing for yourself. And again, because that, that's a process, it's not like you're dropping your entire social network overnight, because that can have some detrimental effects on your your sense of support, even if it's coming from people that maybe aren't the greatest for you anymore, that you've outgrown. Um but in order to, to really cut ties with the purity culture background, we do have to take inventory of who are, who are we surrounding ourselves with and how many of those individuals are still within that purity culture and want to be there. Because then that's going to seep into our lives, right? And so if we want to really distance ourselves from some of those harmful messages that we've received our entire life, we have to seek out a community in which it's, it's made up of individuals that better reflect the values that, that, that we're forming for ourselves. And that, that may mean losing friendships. That may mean distancing yourself from certain family members. And that's a process, and that's going to be difficult. But ultimately, you have to view relationships as fluid, and sometimes you're just going to outgrow relationships because your values yep. don't align anymore. And that doesn't mean that you can't be friends with somebody that has different values. Of course we can differentiate, you know, we don't have to be carbon copies of everybody that we surround ourselves with. So it's more on an individual level of like does this person in my life carry an influence around me that I'm trying to get away from. And if that's the case, then maybe mm. some more distance needs to be created and then replaced with individuals that do foster um, and facilitate the, the type of values and life and interests and behaviors that, that we are aspiring to uh, to get toward.
1: Yeah. We talk, we talk about that a lot, like really setting value-based boundaries for yourself. And I've definitely lost friends over this conversation and, and yeah. you know, in the moment, it seems like a loss. But I do have to be honest; like the, the the gaps are filled in with when they're
2: filled in with like-minded people. You do feel more like yourself. Absolutely,
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's so great. And setting setting those boundaries and really having those, uh, like, just identifying that everything you've heard is probably a lie. And I know yourself. Like, I love that you said the, that. You're like. <laughs> 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 That's a lot for, for an individual, but it's so true. Um, and then my other question, and this kind of goes with the purity culture. So like, what are some ways that do you work with clients who are convinced that they have like a sex or a porn addiction because mm-hmm. beliefs about self-pleasure are immoral in some way? Like yeah, how so do you I, actually gauge that?
3: Yeah, so I would I would look at it and just acknowledge and... Have the person also acknowledge and see what's going on that essentially this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if we think about that we're holding attitudes that say masturbation is unhealthy, it's immoral, it's sinful, You know, it's bad for me, whatever the case may be, but they are masturbating regardless, and then they feel distressed afterwards because they did something Mm. that they don't want to be doing that goes against their values or they think it's bad for them. And then that feeling afterwards, that bad feeling afterwards just reinforces and validates that belief that this is harmful for me. Right, So that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, because if you had different attitudes, if you had the belief that masturbation is perfectly fine, it's just a momentary behavior that feels good, a variety of motivations, why to engage in that behavior at a particular time, and then you move on with your life, you're not going to feel distressed by it. Um, and so it doesn't create a problem for the person. So the first step is to to recognize that this is kind of a cycle of attitudes and behaviors not aligning mm-hmm. and if there is better alignment then there would be better mental health outcomes mm-hmm. now where it becomes a, a problem kind of a, a stuck point is if it's, it's easy if the beliefs are grounded just in some pseudoscientific misinformation or myths that they may have heard right so thinking that masturbation is harmful because you lose testosterone or it's going to have some other negative impact on on your physical self, right? Approach to that is just education and realizing that, you know, what you've heard is just, you know, a flat out lie, or it's just kind of a misrepresentation of what the data actually say. So that can be easily resolved through education. It's a little bit more of a stuck point if the prohibitive attitudes against masturbation are more, theologically grounded, religiously grounded, right. that they think masturbation is a sin,
0: mm-hmm.
3: then it's up against a the, um, a religious belief that I shouldn't be engaging in this behavior because I may go to hell if I do, right? And so, if they still engage in that behavior, then they're going to feel out of control. They're going to feel like they, they have zero willpower. They are swearing that they That they're not going to do this anymore or cut back, but they can't. They keep doing it. So this is where they start believing that they're addicted uh, to Mm -hmm. porn or to masturbation or other types of sexual behavior because this feeling of out of control. But it's a feeling of out of control, less about the number of times that they're actually doing something. That actually has poor predictive value in terms of when a sexual behavior becomes an actual problem for somebody. It's more about this belief, I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm doing it anyways, regardless if it's just a frequency of like once a week, they can still feel like an addict, an out of control person, somebody who's you know addicted to this behavior because it's something that they don't want to be doing at all. And if it's for religious reasons, a good reframing because they'll come into therapy thinking that they have a sex problem, right? That they're a sex addict. Right. It's a self label, mm. but they don't have a problem with sex. It's it's not a, a an issue with their sexuality. The issue is with their religious beliefs. That's what the mm. actual crisis is about because they have beliefs wow. that are so rigid that they're it's unrealistic for them. And so to frame it more as this is a problem with your faith, a problem with your religion, more so than it is about sex, that can start having them at least critically examine where these negative beliefs are coming from and possibly reconcile this difference between your masturbation beliefs and your masturbation behaviors.
2: We've been doing Clit Talk for a while now, over 200 episodes to date, and we have had an influx of new Clitorati, and we still have our consistent OG Clitorati tuning in every week. So we've created a free gift for you. It's called Clit Talk Cliff Notes, The No BS Guide to Self-Pleasure and Sexual Intimacy.
0: And we're really giving you our best highlight reel of sex tips. We have combined our top sex hacks to give you confidence, communication, orgasms, and the ability to take your pleasure game from zero to a hundred real quick and... Blow any partner's mind in bed.
2: Included in this bang and free gift is two free audio trainings: self pleasure is self love, and our hottest sex tips. We also have unreleased episodes uh, and a fan favorite from our sex and empowerment signature masterclass: an erotic visualization and a video on orgasmic breathing.
0: Oh yeah! Mm. So to get a little taste of what we do here, you definitely want to sign up for Clit Talk Cliff Notes. Just go to ClitTalkShow.com backslash guide, because Clitorati, it is possible to have quantum leaps in your sex and empowerment with simple and impactful shifts. Pussy, pussy.
1: I'm talking about a clit talk, clit talk, clit talk Talking about a clit talk, clit talk, clit talk Come on, girls and boys and everyone on the gender rainbow Bring your pussies to the
2: show Yeah, and even if they're not actually following through, like just thinking about it can create the shame. I mean, it's like a shame spiral. Like, even mm-hmm. if they're thinking about it and the more that they resist doing it, the more they want to. And then it's like, these are actually just natural urges and it's just biologically normal to want to... <laughs> yeah, people are horny. It's normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Because I, I grew up Catholic and um, I was a 32-year-old woman who didn't even know that women masturbated and it had never been talked to me about it at all. So this was, so clit talk has been like hugely instrumental in my sexual liberation. So um, I don't know if it was so much from, I don't really remember anyone talking about it, but I definitely just, I think just no one talked about it. So um, that led to having no sort of real connection with my body or real language or ability um, to um, really protect myself when I did enter sexual spaces as, teen, as a teen, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I think this is such an important conversation to be talking about, especially people who grew up really religious. And um, d- is, what started your interest in, in like this theological impacts on sexuality? Initially,
3: um, yeah, just, just examining where kind of like some of the origin stories of our sexual repressive culture um, and oftentimes it, the road led back to religious beliefs, specifically Christianity um, in, in this country. Um, and so recognizing that that's certainly one of the pillars that support um, essentially sexual conservatism. There's other pillars that work along with that, whether it's patriarchy and capitalism and all the other isms that are, you know, fighting for control over individuals. But certainly Christianity is a a strong pillar in that because it has that spiritual aspect to it of like, it's it's not just, don't do this because it's bad for your body. It's don't do this because you're going to burn in hell for eternity. That that lands a little bit
0: harder. Um, I'll be there with Billy Joel and a shot of whiskey. Oh, I was just Thinking the same thing, I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm I'm also I grew up Jewish and uh, was uh, uh, watching lesbian scissoring porn shamelessly at a very (laughs) young age, and enrolling all of my friends to watch it with me. So I will be there in hell with you. Me and Madison will be throwing
1: a sex party in hell, and you're all invited.
0: (laughs) Come if you want. Like, come and party with us. Uh,
2: (laughs) So. That's so funny. So we talk about... um, We get a lot of questions from our listeners about communication and their relationships. And a lot of them do argue over porn. And I found this quote from you. It's that it's a lot easier for couples to argue about porn use than it is to have a vulnerable conversation about Mm. sexual desire discrepancy, relational boundaries, insecurities, coping mechanisms, and the role of masturbation in the relationship and why one partner is aroused by pirates. (laughs) Like, there's so many different things, right? Like, it's easier to talk about like, oh, you're using porn instead of talking about the real things that are actually happening. And it's so great because our sex and empowerment communication program, we deal we deal with this a lot. So what is your advice for that you have for those in relationships and having these more vulnerable and approaching these more vulnerable conversations and kind of like breaking down where these things are coming from instead of just placing blame?
3: Yeah, so... What what that all like revolves around is an acknowledgement of solo, solo sexuality existing in relationships. Like that doesn't go away. Right? right. A lot of times we have this belief or this unspoken agreement that, oh, I'm in a relationship now. I I don't need to masturbate anymore. I don't need to look at porn. Uh why would I? Because I have a, a sexual partner. And that's really thinking that masturbation is always just like this secondary behavior, this less than that can just be replaced with partnered sexual behavior, that it's just kind of waiting out for the, the real thing, as opposed to recognizing and kind of respecting that it's its own sexual behavior, and that can exist regardless of, of your relationship status. So it's having a conversation, and I think starting with when you're in a relationship of what does solo sexuality still look like now that we're partnered and realizing that it does exist and that it doesn't have to be viewed as a threat to the relationship, that just because your partner masturbates does not mean that they are unsatisfied in the relationship, that they are trying to find some type of compensation for a, for a need that, that, that that's not being met. And that certainly can be the case, but that doesn't mean that the relationship is, you know, threatened by it. I mean, that right. can be a role of masturbation and specifically like porn use or, or, or fantasy is, is to get a need met that that's currently not in the relationship. But that doesn't mean that that's going to take that person away from the relationship, so they can pursue right. this this fantasy, right? It's being met in that fantasy within the the solo sexuality world, and then they still exist perfectly healthily in their uh, partnered relationship. And so, I, I the, the the tweet that you quoted about kind of uh, you know fighting about pirates. You know, I, I I have a hard time believing that any relationship has ended because somebody just wanted to pursue pirate porn over their <laughs> current relationship. I shouldn't say that doesn't exist. Maybe somebody was unsatisfied with the lack of <laughs> eye patches or something. But uh, the, the the point of that is to recognize that when we see our partner's browser history, that can spike insecurity of like, well, does this mean I need to start dressing up as a pirate now? <laughs> Do we need to get a parrot? Like, what what is this about? Like, this is clearly fulfilling a need that I'm not providing and it doesn't have to mean anything it doesn't have to have even have to involve you whatsoever this is their solo sexuality and mm-hmm. you have your partner's sexuality and there can be overlap there can be crossover right but it doesn't have to be right it's no different than like I can really enjoy just, you know, going through the drive through at Wendy's and eating in the parking lot, um, you know, a sandwich and, and, and fries, and that would be totally satisfying for me. Does that mean that that's taking away from an experience of enjoying a nice dinner with my wife? Absolutely not. It's... It, the, the two aren't comparable, but they're meeting needs in that moment that the other person or the other behaviors cannot. Um, and so I think starting having couples start with the acknowledgement of I'm still an individual sexual being now that I am in a partnered relationship. So what does my individual sexuality still look like now that I'm coupled and being open and honest with that? Because from my clinical experience, the problems that couples came in with, it may have looked on the surface like it was a porn problem. I'll gender this because it was, it was typically like a, a heterosexual couple and the the, the husband uh, got caught with porn. The wife found the browser history and that, that created a conflict, feelings of betrayal, things like that. And they entered therapy believing that this person was a sex addict or a porn addict. And over the course of therapy, it becomes less and less about the porn and more so about the secrecy and the, the violation of trust and in, in the betrayal. So if all of that was out in the open at the beginning, then there was no secrecy. There was no like trying to go into like a private mode or delete browser history or stuff like that. There is an acknowledgement and a respect of, hey, I'm still an individual in this relationship. Mm. These are my individual sexual needs that I can get met within still the, the boundaries of the relationship and whatever that looks like. And that needs to be a conversation of where do we put this boundary Um, And even monogamous couples need to have that conversation because, you know, there there can be disagreements over whether or not it's appropriate for one partner to to look at porn. And I'm not putting a value Mm. statement on saying like one way is better than the other. You just have to be in agreement with that. Mm. And if you are in a relationship with somebody that says like, absolutely not, I do not want you masturbating or not want you looking at porn, no sex toys whatsoever... Like There's nothing really inherently wrong with that as long as the other person shares those values. But if they don't share those values, then that could be a serious problem for the relationship. And they need to be open and honest about that uh, because that will, if if you're not 100% on board with those values, then that can lead to the secrecy and that's going to lead to problems
1: right.
0: in the long
3: run.
1: Oof, I right. cannot imagine a relationship <laughs> like that. <laughs> I mean, there's
0: there's nothing like worse for a relationship than like shame, right? And like, this is so, this hits so home for me because when I first met my now husband, which by the way, we're selling our five-year wedding anniversary tomorrow. Uh, we've been together Congrats. for eight years. Thank you so much. It's like really so exciting to celebrate. It's like the first year where I'm like, we really should fucking celebrate. We love each other so much. We've been through it. We went through it. All the counseling, like, yes, let's celebrate that love. But nonetheless, when I first met him, I was a closeted queer woman married to a straight man. And four years into that relationship, I could not speak to my husband without the bitchiest tone. Like I was just fundamentally resentful of him and I didn't know why. Mm. I then discovered six months after starting Clit Talk that uh, it's because I'm not expressing my individual sexuality, as you so beautifully coined, inside of this relationship. And fortunately for me, my partner was all about supporting me on this self exploration that I went on, allowed me the space to have a relationship with another woman for the first year of our marriage. Um, and that I got to journey safely and journey well in that. And and here we are like five years later, but if it was of a, a value, uh, difference, you know, it could have been a deal breaker for him. And he could have been like, well, I thought I was marrying a straight woman <laughs> and we were going to be monogamous forever. And this no longer works for me. But luckily in my instance. Um, his value for self-growth superseded his own expectations of what he thought his relationship would look like. And he was way more curious in growing with me and, like, becoming more of who he, like, just that that personal discovery for himself. But I imagine that in some relationships, that would look like the other person being be like, this is a no for me. This is a deal breaker. Yeah. We're complete.
3: Mm-hmm yeah and it certainly can be, and it's you know and there's a lot of middle ground between those those two outcomes uh as well, but it it is really about authenticity and you know the cliche of like you know relationships require like compromise and which is true, you're dealing with other people, and so there needs to be some give there, but only to a certain extent. Um, to avoid like that that buildup of resentment over time. And so what is your authentic self still giving into some compromises that you're willing to compromise on in a relationship? And that's going to look different for, for every couple. Some are going to maintain monogamy and have like various definitions of what those boundaries look like within monogamy. Others, it's the best fit to open up that relationship into a more of a, a non-monogamous uh, sphere and put boundaries around it within that non-monogamous um, kind of space but you know there's no you know blueprint that everybody can follow it's it's so unique and it just requires everyone to be very very honest of what their values are what they need and hopefully it'll it aligns with with your partner and if it doesn't <clears throat> acknowledging that and you know is it a deal breaker kind of yeah. a lack of alignment or is it something that can be worked on over time um again it's 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 very individual but at least to 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 know that it may just not be a good fit once all this authenticity comes to the surface, and that's how I always approach uh, couples therapy. It's a little unorthodox from what I hear from like traditionally trained couples therapists coming out of more of like marriage and family therapy programs, of where the, the focus is on to increase the health of the relationship. As a clinical psychologist, I focused more on the the individual health, and mm. ideally that each individual in the couple would grow. Individually and increase their own health, and ideally, right, the relationship would become stronger as a result. But I would tell them up front, like with health increasing both on an individual level, that may get to the point where you realize the healthiest decision is not to be in a relationship with one another, and that's a transition, and that can be difficult, that can be stressful, and that can be sad. And however, it's it's in the healthiest direction for for, for both of you.
1: Wow! Yeah. That's intense. <laughs> it's so true though, right? Like if you lose your individualism inside of a relationship, like it's just like, you're going to be miserable. And, mm-hmm. and I do notice like the more I actually am in counseling right now with my partner and the more secure I am, the more independent we become, which is, mm-hmm. which is great. You know, and then when we come together and I do find like, you know, it's important not to lose that in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. I feel like this should be a conversation before anyone gets married because no one talked to me about like, cause I did think when I got married, oh, you don't masturbate anymore. Like you don't have your own individual sexuality. I never like thought about it, but that was definitely messages of like, oh, like, oh, they're masturbating. Oh, that's yeah. bad kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, this, you know. Yeah, this
1: should be the premarital counseling that everybody has. <laughs> for
2: sure. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you take all these classes before you have babies. There needs to be classes like this before you get married and have these types of questions, or even before you um, date.
1: It, they should just have like a list on dating profiles. Like these, these are my deal breakers. That's that. That's the totally. app that needs to be created. Yeah. Instead of
0: like law, lo- I like long walks on the beach. It's like these are my values, and <laughs> these are my these are my fuck yeses, and these are my deal breakers.
2: I like sex toys and sex parties in hell. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh. So good. So we talk a lot here about upcoming, how our upcoming generations are so fluid. And I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I we live in California. It kind of feels like we're in a bubble here a lot. So I just wanted to get your opinion because I know you've done a lot of research on marginalized sexual identities over the years. And so what do you think? Have, have Are we moving the needle forward? Are you seeing progress in this upcoming generation of kids or is all that information out there is, it kind of seems like a big mess sometimes.
3: Yeah. I, I, unfortunately, I don't know what any, if what kind of research has been done on this from like a more of a sociological perspective that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm ignorant about. So it's just for my own observations, which isn't the greatest because I deal, you know, with adults, the, the youngest, you know, people that I see are, are college level, um, you know, students, of early 20s. So I have no idea what's really going on in like junior highs and like high schools uh, across the country. And I, I just see that kind of like mixed bag um, of, you know, some sexual progressiveness, especially when it comes to uh, sexual orientation and, and gender. But then, you know, occasionally my notifications on social media are are filled with very, very young people who just communicate in anti-Semitic memes uh, toward me because they don't like some type of sexual progressive thing that that I shared. And so then I think, you know, we're all doomed if this is the next generation. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I I really don't know. I, I think without sounding, you know, like, Tech, like a technophobic old, old timer, um, th- there is concerns that I have about misinformation in mm. the inability for individuals to screen out credible sources, and this kind of social media environment in which, on the one hand, uh, like really. Brought democracy to like speech, that we all have access to the same platforms, you know regardless of you know positions of power, you know we're all in on like Twitter together or something like that. It has become in a lot of ways the you know a digital town square. Right. but the, the downside of that <laughs> is everybody's opinion on there is taken at like equal value. and mm. when we're talking about like medical and scientific facts. There shouldn't be like equal opinion about no. that because that's not the reality. So I, I find myself up against that a lot on social media mm. that I'm spouting medical information, scientific facts, interpreting you know, research articles and kind of packaging them so the public can understand them even without you know a scientific background and if somebody just disagrees with what i'm saying because it goes against like their beliefs it goes against their values or, or their morals they'll push back they'll say something's like okay that, that's fine but if i want to like clarify or kind of point out maybe where, where they're incorrect in their thinking and understanding kind of where this misinformation that they're buying into has come from. A lot of times, ultimately, it just comes down to them saying, well, you can have your opinion and I can have mine. <laughs> I'm like, this isn't really up for today. This isn't like an opinion-based but you're conversation. <laughs> right, yeah. I know. So <laughs> you incorrect. <laughs> right, so that's where I'm really concerned with uh, some of the social media um, misinformation that can spread so so quickly because if if somebody has especially people with with large platforms if they're spouting some nonsense and misinformation there's automatically like a degree of credibility coming from it because they have a large following and then that becomes like truth so there's so many times where i've said something about pornography or masturbation those those are the big ones that get a lot of attention mm-hmm. and a lot of misinformation around somebody will say well i saw this you know TikTok or, or or this YouTube video, or I watched this documentary and it said like the complete opposite, and that's what they're buying into because they buy into it because it aligns with their values. So it's just a confirmation hey, bias uh, for them, hey, yeah. and so that's really hard to to work with and explain. Of like, yeah, I, I know where you got this, and it's just wrong, um, right. and here's why it's wrong. And but the, that that doesn't necessarily you know changing beliefs is very challenging, even in the face of real accurate information.
2: Oh my I mean, how yes. much time are you spending, like, on social media? <laughs> just, yeah, I mean, like, like with these yeah, types of I, I, very,
3: like, I Yeah, so I, I actually rarely respond to like comments. <laughs> I, I don't respond to, to DMs or anything. But um, if I respond to a comment, it, it's less about like trying to correct them, so to speak, and more of just serving as a, a model of how to, for other people who will see the the response that I'm giving mm. to this comment of okay. how to respond to this comment. Kind of nonsense, like without any expectation that I'm like changing the mind of this person that I'm communicating with. But yeah. sometimes they'll they'll say something that's pretty common or just so ridiculous that you know, well, here's my perspective on this. This is why you have this misinformation, just so other people can see that.
1: Yeah, if you want to prove that unicorns are real, just
2: Google it and you can find 50 articles <laughs> saying that unicorns are real.
3: <laughs> right. Mm-hmm.
2: I did this post actually yesterday about like raising sexually healthy kids and it was just really about... Did you see this? It was I saw using, that Katie just got into using, it. Just, I mean, I tried to... I think I tried to do it, what you just said of just like to educate and not... I mean, I'm not looking to change anyone's mind, but just using the correct body parts for like the correct biological body parts because if you... um call like a vulva or a penis like a hoo-ha or a willy or something like it can it creates like a separation that their body that body part is something different and it can actually lead to shame and um and so that was what the post was about and you're nodding your head I'm actually looking for validation because I actually I just learned this in one of my classes and and they were like to say the scientific terminology is correct is correct like, how do you know if the terminology is correct when words come from the Greek language? It's just like, <laughs> how do you respond to people
3: like that? <laughs> yeah, so anyway. I mean, they,
2: you, you, you don't. don't, right? Yeah, yeah
3: because it, it's it's like trying to explain evolution to somebody who is a diehard creationist, right? <laughs> right. So if, if somebody believes that <laughs> right. the Earth on is Facebook 6, 000, <laughs> right? If somebody believes that the Earth is six thousand years old and humans <laughs> rode dinosaurs and stuff like that, it's like they're no, you can't have a conversation, um, yeah. especially about evolution, uh, with them. They're at a kids' table, <laughs> and, and and so similarly here. I mean, if they're getting that like nitpicky about something, they don't want. They're not having a conversation in good faith. They're just expressing their discomfort and trying to look at, like in their mind, what they think are intellectual arguments uh, against yours. Um, yeah, and so yeah. Because so
1: like, oh. I, I, I read this whole exchange that Katie had with this person at the end. Their last comment was, well, the proper, the scientific words just sound dirty to me. I'm like, so that's your problem. Like, <laughs> right,
3: exactly. Just admit yeah. mm. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, we, what I have certainly found out and what has allowed me to like take very nasty nasty comments that i receive on on social media sometimes less personal is that it's all a projection of a person's own stuff that they're going yeah. through like they're right. uncomfortable with something they have insecurities about something they had a relationship in which they felt porn destroyed it because they weren't open about you know talking about boundaries or their feelings about porn their partner was secretive about it it's yeah. less about what i'm saying and more about their own shit coming to the table and projecting it into my comments section.
0: I, I don't mean, know why just as life. we're talking <laughs> <laughs> like literally as we're talking about this I don't know if you guys are Megan The Stallion fans but she has a music video called Pussy Talk <laughs> and like the beginning of it is this senator who's like privately masturbating in uh, his, his office and then these girls just basically <laughs> twerk on him and smother them with their booties <laughs> and um, it's a full circle at the end they like turn his mouth into a vulva and it's just check it out Megan Ooh. The Stallion all Pussy right. talk music video. <laughs> yes, she just paid for us it's to sponsor that. No, just kidding. Right. <laughs> that, would cool, that would be cool though. That we just like name drops. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, um, so still on the, I do want to ask one more question about like the kids right now because I'm I'm a mom I'm like pregnant right now with my second kid. So, the it, what do you think that? What's your um opinion on the impact of Florida's GOP controlled the HB fifteen fifty seven the parental guide rights in education that's been dubbed like the Don't Say Gay Bill um, mm-hmm. because it seeks to ban discussion of gender and sexuality issues in younger students. Do, mm-hmm. What's your opinion on, on that? What impact negative—I mean, I think they're mostly negative, but um, do you see that being in younger kids growing up in this particular part of the country and how that can actually spread to all throughout our country?
3: Yeah, I mean, that that certainly is not going to bring anything positive to the table, those bills. <laughs> no. uh, what's interesting is that that has been the status quo, you know, up until this point, right? It's like there didn't—a law wasn't necessary for those conversations to be actively avoided or shunned or, or punished in, in public schools. Um, mm. But now that, you know, it's it's becoming more common and more accepting— to have these conversations about identity and sexual orientation and, and, and right. gender. Um, this is just a reactionary, you know, reactionary politics. It's people trying to hang on to the status quo, and they're doing so in, in, in desperate ways. And they're pandering to, I mean, it's Ron DeSantis, I mean, it's it's pandering to a base that's idiotic um, but it's an idiotic base that votes, right? And, and so this is yeah. what keeps people in, <laughs> in, in power, right? And they're also the loudest, right? Even if they are... Statistically, a minority in this country, they're the ones screaming at, uh, you know, school board meetings, right? Over the past couple of years about masks. And now it's about concerns that there are groomers, you know, in elementary school because a a teacher acknowledged that they're married to somebody of, of their same gender, right? And so it's ridiculous. It's emotional. It's reactive. And they get attention and they get catered to because they are having a tantrum. Right. And it's easier for these school boards and other people in positions of power just to try to calm them down. And then by calming them down, they make concessions to them. And that just empowers them even more. They're getting what they want. And so I think fighting against these reactionaries, fighting against these toddlers who are having these tantrums in these public uh, spaces is to be comfortable being called names, being comfortable enough uh, to be yelled at. Um, yep. To be accused of things that you know that you're not because they're just name-calling, the things like groomer and stuff like that, those ridiculous things. Um, to be able to tolerate that, it's going to hurt. It's uncomfortable. You know, I've been certainly called every name imaginable, but that doesn't have to mean that you have to change your behavior. Um, Mm. to cater to that nonsense to cater to that irrationality to cater to that tantrum that these adults are are having that's reactionary politics they're trying to get what they want it's a desperate attempt they feel cornered they're losing power whatever is going on in their mind it's important for those in decision making positions of power to essentially hold the line so to speak and not allow these just this very loud tantrumy vocal minority to dictate public policy
2: Mm. yeah
1: I love the I I love the way you give no fucks (laughs) so much like I need I need uh. more of that in my life
3: yeah <laughs> well that's, yeah. that's the paradox because I give a lot of fucks
0: yeah like, exactly getting, getting you give well, the right then, fucks
3: then, <laughs> then, right but no like with with even people that hate me right so some right. random person will send me like a death threat I mean, and I'm like oh my goodness why why is this person so upset with me right that that's like personally upsetting. I mean, like the, the threat of violence aside, it's like, oh, I upset somebody. I don't want to do that. I don't strive to just be like, you know, right. poking people. Um, but when we're dealing with sexuality, people are going to get up upset because it's, it's polarizing. And so it's it's creating a lot of discomfort in me. But just kind of what I was saying for people in positions of decision-making power and authority that don't allow those feelings, that discomfort, to change your behavior if you're engaging in behavior that you believe is just and then on the right path.
1: Yeah, it it reminds. So one of our our mentors, Regina Tomashar, I don't know if you're familiar with her. <clears throat> she when the Roe versus Wade came out, she had a, a just a, a she posted a video on her Instagram, pure emotional reaction, something she calls swamping, and Ben Shapiro and some other guy like. You took her reaction and were like making fun of her. And the whole thing went viral. Really? And she yeah, this like just happened. And so she she had the best response. She did like a video back to them, and she's like, hey, let's have a conversation and thanks for making my video go viral. And she's like, you guys are naughty. And it was just, it was the best. I, like she, I feel like she really embodied what you're, you're talking about and, mm-hmm. um, and in the right my way. God. And, and, and I think that it's, cause I was like, oh my God, if someone did that to me, I'd be so embarrassed. But just hearing you say like, you've got, if you're going to take a stand for something, you've got to be okay with people coming at you for it and just be with that and still keep taking the actions that you believe to be the right ones. And I just think that's right. really good life advice.
3: <laughs> yeah, and, and to look at it conversely too, right? So if you're pissing off Ben Shapiro, that should be an indication that you're doing something pretty good, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, because I, I don't want to say something relating to sexuality and sexual politics and sexual health and freedom. And Ben Shapiro is seeing it and be like, I agree with that. Yeah, that seems yeah. like <laughs> no, yeah. I right. didn't,
0: we
1: all that, didn't want with us, <laughs> right?
3: That could show that I'm a little bit off of, of, of my oh, mission. Yeah. Um, yeah. so that's another way to look at it. I was like, and you know, friendship here, the, the whole right wing media Ugh. ecosystem that feeds, yeah. uh, feeds into one another. Yeah, um, I know several years, years back, Tucker Carlson was doing like a little bit of a hit piece on me, and that just created like this flood of hate in my, you know, oh, inbox, man. voicemail, my. People were writing letters um, to oh my, my uh, work address and, and all this stuff, right? <laughs> Ultimately, you know, it increased my visibility. Um, yeah. and like,
2: <laughs> You're like, Tuck, and you like, thank <laughs>
3: you. Right. And like people like Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro, they don't give a shit about what they're actually saying, right? They're not like pet causes for them. This is just something that they know. Again, like DeSantis, they're they're pandering to an idiotic face that gets all worked up about things. But if you find yourself in a situation like that, just know that you know our attention span is like, I mean, for something really, really big and something very, very viral is really no more than 24 to 48 hours. And then the next little shiny thing has the right-wing media ecosystem distracted that they're trying to rile up their base with. And so it, it goes away pretty quickly, but it can be intense in that moment. But just kind of, again, kind of know that, you know, if these big platform conservatives are upset with you, you know, that,
0: You're doing you can do that as a good thing. New right? goal, <laughs> yeah, right. That's a good, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just got really excited to like receive like you know viral hate mail in that <laughs> way. Right. I know I will handle it. Well, like that's when you channel. know you've made it when you've been. You get a bunch of hate mail and you've really pissed off a lot of people. Mm-hmm. My next reel is gonna be like Ben Shapiro. I'm talking to you, please. I'm gonna tag Ben Shapiro. I'm gonna start a fucking little real war with Ben Shapiro. Um, mm-hmm. Such an illuminating conversation. I'm just, I'm sitting here like so grateful that we got to have this conversation with you. It's kind of wild that we ju- we just are for the first time in five years. Like I feel like we're peoples, you know. I'm like, well, this is so <laughs> so, so fun, and um, I just love the the context that you carry with this, and you can feel it, you can see it. Looking at you, you embody this conversation. And it's, it's just like, of course, to all your success, like who you're being in the world is much needed. And if I can just say on the record, super sexy. And I'm so grateful for the, the, that you are, you know, using your platform to just keep going, you know? And and then it does take that, that, that confidence that you think that you really embody, that knowingness, that trust in yourself, that, that you're, you're doing you're living your truth, and you're 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 sharing your authentic truth and your message, um, so incredibly. Like we could all take notes from, from you. Yeah, and, and I think it comes yeah, because that. you're
2: so educated, right? So, like the biggest issue I, I see is like the lack of sex education or comprehensive sex education. There's still 15 states that do not require medically accurate sex education for kids. <laughs> I know, humble, so mind-boggling. <laughs> And then, um, so there's been the reintroduction of the Safe Sex Workers Study Act um, in March, and it's it's for it's important because communities like us who are being impacted by censorship of sexual speech and content, including comprehensive, met- medically accurate sex education. So, how what what's your opinion on that? And like, what can we do to really elevate the sex education um, on a more like legal? kind of um, more impactful arena? Do you you have any solutions or like ideas? Yeah,
3: unfortunately in in the United States, right? it's, It's so fragmented. Um, You know, the federal Department of Education is one of the, you know, one of the weakest departments at at the federal level. Um, They have very, very few mandates, you know, at best as when it comes down to like sexuality education. It's just how much abstinence only funding gets uh, during a particular presidency or something. Which leads to
2: more pregnancies. (laughs) Yeah. Right,
3: right. So it's really at the state issue and even more so at, at the individual district level. And so to, to become active at that district level, to see what, um, what are the, the sex ed requirements um, within the, the school district in, in which you live, can you see the curricula, um, who's teaching it, and even beyond just established curricula, whether it exists or not. Who's being invited for, you know, assemblies, because a lot of times that's how absence only uh, proselytizing from religious groups gets into public schools. It's through like some... A ridiculous assembly that's that's guised under sexual health but it's just purity messaging coming from like a youth pastor yeah. um, but they kind of dance or walk that fine line of not proselytizing overtly but it's certainly coming from religious specifically Christianity um, value system programming. Um, so becoming involved at the district level and combating the those reactionaries that I was talking about earlier who, who are yelling, at, at some of these policies specifically, but being the louder voice in the room. Unfortunately, you know, people in positions of power, decision-making power, they, they are going to cater to those who are showing up and making noise, um, even if they are in a minority. So it's important to to be the louder voice, to to drown out the reactionaries and those coming from a place of irrational um, uh, beliefs about sexuality where it's, it's just their own personal religious beliefs that they want to project into public policy, into school curricula, uh, just have to, to drown them out. Um, that's that's painting, obviously, a broad stroke Um I mean, the most progressive school district is going to be confined with what they are legally able to teach based on state law. And so it may need to then jump up to the next level of like, okay, your school district is doing everything in their ability. But these state laws are are pretty prohibitive and kind of backwards and archaic. Um, And so what do we need to do now on the on the state level uh, for advocacy? Who would we start speaking to with that? And any type of direct action, not direct action, but um, advocacy working within the system that's been effective for me, it is, you you really have to keep it local. So no one's going to care about you um, if you're coming from, like, an out-of-state. Like, for me, from Minnesota, I can't go down to Florida and advocate for better sex ed there. Like, that nobody... The the elected politicians don't serve me. You know I'm an out of state,r right. and even within a state, you have to go with your elected individual, right? Your state senator, your state representative, get them on board, build start a coalition with those um, that actually do represent you in your specific uh, district or neighborhood, and ideally, you have a coalition of like minded individuals in other parts of the state so that they can get their elected officials on board and then you can start getting some momentum for for some change. But it is like this, a, a, a very much a, a grassroots uh, effort.
2: Yeah. Wow, yeah. And then also like I, I think what we're doing is um, we're really passionate about having adult sex education so that parents can actually be more comfortable in their sexuality so that they can pass that on to their kids. Cause it, it can also start at home. But yeah, it's yeah. really great advice on the, um, on this, um, the like the state stance of like what you can actually do.
1: Yeah. Vote mm-hmm. like your rights depend on it. Cause they do. <laughs> they really yeah. do. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, well, this was illuminating. Thank you so much for all of your, um, you know, candid and transparent answers. I think that this is a this is a conversation that we haven't really been able to have with any other guests. So thank you yeah. so <laughs> yeah, much. Pleasure. This is a huge, huge um, gift to our to our listeners and to us and to the world because we're going to get the message out there. So, is there anything that you wanted to leave our listeners with?
3: Um, no, I get asked this occasionally and I should have a, a better answer because I don't. Closers, so, yeah, I don't.
2: <laughs> well, what, okay. well
1: where, where's the best place for our listeners to, obviously we're going to have all the links in our show notes for everybody. You do have to follow this man on social media. His social media is incredible. What, what's the, where's the best place for people to follow you and to stay in this conversation with you?
3: Yeah, social media is the best place right now. Things are in the work that I'll have other uh, other outlets um, oh, cool. probably beginning early next year. But social media right now to follow with anything. So I'm just on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Sprankle is my handle for both of those.
1: Perfect. Amazing. And please let us know about these new things coming next year so we can let all of our listeners know. That's very, sounds very exciting. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for coming on today and really um, educating us and our listeners. I know there's somebody listening right now that this conversation made a tremendous difference for. So thank you for taking your time to be with us today. Um, And with that, Clitorati, we are going to see you next Tuesday. (laughs) Bye-bye.
2: If you liked this and are curious about our Clit Talk curriculum, we have a waitlist for our upcoming free workshops and our Sex and Empowerment Signature Masterclass in 2022. Nothing like starting the new year guided by pleasure. Sign up for the waitlist to come tap into your pussy sanctuary with Katie, myself, Sugar, and Lindsay at www.clittalkshow.com backslash waitlist. That's clittalkshow.com backslash wait